I debated on what to talk about today, because uh, we've been going through 1 Corinthians, if you've been with us, and last week we were in chapter 6, which kind of ended with a, we've been there actually two weeks in a row, and uh, today chapter 7 continues the same theme, and so I almost changed it, but then as I was looking at it, I thought, by the time we get to the end of this today, uh, I hope that we're going to see this has some application to all of us, because uh, as a dad, it's a struggle to manage maybe the marriage or the family or just the relational dynamic uh, of being a dad, and sometimes that's hard. And I think the passage we're going to look at today is not a passage I've ever preached on before. It's one when you read your Bible, you kind of scratch your head and you think, well, well, what's that all about? What do I do with that? And so today we want to maybe answer that a little bit and draw some applications after we've walked through this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Before we get to that, this past week, um, there was a fun thing that took place on social media. Uh, Lee Sanderlin lives in Mississippi, and he's in a fantasy football league with a number of his friends. And, and Lee um, lost. He was last place in his fantasy football league this year. And the punishment for being last was that he had to go sit in a Waffle House in Mississippi for 24 hours. He had to stay there. The catch was, for every waffle he ate, he could knock an, an hour off of his time. And so, I love Waffle House. I'll go out of my way to eat there if I can, if I have time to do that. I uh, love their waffles. But I don't know how much I love their waffles, right? How much, I mean, one's great, but where's the line of, this is over the top? Well, Lee ended up sitting in that Waffle House for 15 hours. He ate nine waffles, and he had one upset stomach. He said when he left there that day, he was full of waffles and devoid of life. And so uh, there are times, there are lines in life where some really good thing, um, waffles, becomes a not so good thing, right? Nine waffles in a short period of time. It becomes an uncomfortable and awkward thing. And, and so as we've been talking about this theme of, of as we're going to see today, of marriage and singleness and sex and all of those things, uh, those, as Paul kind of intertwines them through this text, um, we, I want to say, without ruining your nef- next Waffle House experience, I want to use that as an as a awkward transition, perhaps, um, because we live in a culture where um, sex is very much over the top. Everything is sexualized. Everything seems to go in that direction. Our culture is obsessed and dominated with that. We just push, push, push on every limit, everything, and... Um, it's, it's very much a taking a good thing and, again, making something that maybe isn't such a good thing after all. And so in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, Paul is looking at this theme. And he's not doing it randomly. Um, and the good news, as you read through a letter like 1 Corinthians, and then you hold it up against the culture in which you live, um, it ought to be a little bit of a comfort that 2,000 years ago there was a church that was planted, that was growing, that was... Um, doing the work of God in a culture that was the most sexually crazed, sexually permissive culture that you could possibly find. Everything was okay in Corinth. And you went there because everything was okay in Corinth. And yet in that culture, Paul came with this message of Jesus and his kingdom with this very countercultural um, ethic when it came to lots of things, but certainly sexuality was one of those things and he talked about celibacy if you're single and, and marriage between a man and a woman. And that, again, stood in very stark contrast to the ethic of the culture. 
And so today, when you and I, when we read the Bible, when we see what it says and teaches us and calls us to, we may feel like, well, that's very different from what everything in my culture thinks and is pushing at me. And it's good to know I'm not alone in that. I'm not the first generation of Christians to wrestle with that and have to figure that out and navigate that culture. And so, um, again, everything in its proper context is good and healthy, um, but going, pushing things beyond the boundaries or the, the, the limits of what God calls us to usually ends up with damage being done to individuals, to cultures, to families, and, um, and we see that in our culture. Maybe you got here today. Most of you probably got here in a car. Uh, some of you had an electric car. Some of you had bicycles that you rode here on. Um, but for the most part, we, we, we rode in cars here today that inside those motors, there's fire and gas coming together to create explosions, right? Little explosions that uh, as they explode, they propel our cars forward in our combustion engines. Um, and that's a healthy, contained thing, and it produces forward progress. But if you were to take gas and fire just in your backyard and start a fire and begin to throw gas on that, that potential for that to erupt or to, to expand or to do something harmful and dangerous certainly um, is there. And I think that illustrates a little bit of what Paul is, is wrestling with. That There's this really good thing that God blesses and God has given to us, and yet as it gets taken out of that context, it's, it just diminishes, it damages the lives of so many people. Because of it. And so we want to look at 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9 today. I want to read through it. Again, it's, I've never preached on this passage before. Don't know that I ever will, but it's good to come back to it and think about this because this passage that feels a little awkward and forward to us, I think it offers good advice to a people in a culture that are wrestling to figure out well, what do we do with, with this? How do we live this way as Christians? And what should that look like? And so um, we're going to read that here shortly. 1 Corinthians, as we said when we started the book, really can be divided into two sections. There's chapters 1 through 6, which we finished last week, which was Paul had heard word from this lady named Chloe of these things that were going on in Corinth. There was divisions. They were suing each other. There was um, sexual immorality going on. There's things. And so Paul has addressed all of those things in these first six chapters. Now, when we get to chapter 7, uh, it switches from not Chloe's words, but Apparently, they had sent Paul a letter, as will via three men, we'll meet in chapter 16, who have gone to Paul with this letter saying, okay, Paul, we're trying to live this out in this culture, and so explain these things to us. We have these questions, um, and every growing Christian is always going to have questions. And so they sent this letter to Paul to get answers. And so that's where we pick up today in chapter 7, verse 1. Um, where we are introduced to the first question, which very much ties into the ethic that Paul has been teaching them that we finished with at the end of last week in chapter 6. Let's read the question that they have first. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, that's not Paul's words. I just think that's very much their words to Paul saying, well, Paul, we've heard you teach, uh, as we read in chapter 6 last week, this was kind of Paul's summary statement of, of the ethic of the, he was calling them to when he said, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, and so glorify God with your body. 
And so that's the ethic, that your body is a temple. It is something to glorify God with, not to just satisfy all the lusts that you have and the desires you have. It's a temple to glorify God with. And so they heard that teaching. They knew that teaching. He reminded them of it. So they have questions. They have a question. Well, Paul, then maybe it's better for us just to completely stay away from each other altogether. Let's just all be celibate and never even mess with the whole idea because why don't we just, if, if the line is here, let's just go here. Maybe that's their thinking. And people were maybe t- teaching that, thinking that. And so they asked Paul to say, well, Paul, what do you think of that? Well, in verse 2, Paul begins to answer that. And really all of chapter 7 is a response to this thing. And what he's doing, he's going to teach them about sexuality, about marriage, about singleness, about all of these things that, that God has teaching on. And he shares it with them through Paul. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 2 continues as he unpacks his response to them. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, when you read that phrase, conjugal rights, um, that's not the most romantic term. Paul was not a Hallmark card writer, okay? It was not the conjugal rights section in your Hallmark uh, card rack. But Paul, other places, maybe, again, it's not a very romantic term. The New King James, I think, puts it, uh, the affection due the other, right? There's that idea of that there's this affection, there's this love that is due to each other that we ought to be showing each other. Now, Paul endorses marriage and sex in this early part of this chapter, um, and that's not something new for Paul. Paul has always blessed marriage. He has spoken well of it and called us to pursue it with a good heart. In 1 Timothy 3, he affirmed that he wanted those who lead the church to give themselves well to the work of their marriage and their family because that uh, is important. That is a good place to practice leadership. Um, So he didn't want anyone to ban marriage or to say, you know what, you all should just stay apart. He said marriage is a good thing. It is a blessed thing by God. And throughout Scripture, that is a common thing. Companionship in Genesis chapter 2, as well as procreation um, that you see there. Malachi chapter 2 talks about marriage or a godly home as a place for godly offspring to grow and to, to know the Lord from a young age. Ephesians chapter 5 has uh, a familiar passage, read it on most weddings I've ever been to. It's a picture of Christ's love for the church. And so marriage is this illustration, uh, visual illustration of this greater love of Christ for his church and the church for Christ and, and Christ's sacrificial love that he has for his bride. Um, and now we read here in second, or 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that Paul deals with the idea that it's also a place where these passions that we have are to be channeled in, and, and met in the context of marriage. And so um, Paul says, if you can't handle a celibate life, and that's, he recognizes that some people will not do that, then they should find help in marriage. Um, and so the marriage bed, he said, should be a place where needs are met. And that we seek to satisfy the other, which is the key part of that, which maybe differentiates this from maybe other cultural talk where it's about how do I satisfy what I want. This is about, well, how do I satisfy my partner, my spouse? How do I do that? This is not the place where I demand what I'm due, but where instead I seek to serve one another for the good of the other person. Paul goes on in verse 4 to unpack what he means by that. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
And so do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Those are interesting words, and words that certainly have been twisted and manipulated by some in history. Um, But whatever Paul means here, he means this is a mutual thing. Paul is not endorsing sexual domination over another person. This should not be, these words should not be used to force perversity or to force a spouse to do something they're not comfortable with. It is a verse, if this verse produces nightmares in your spouse's life, then you are not applying this verse as Paul was writing it. It is supposed to be a blessing as he writes this about what this is a marriage. See, the marriage bed is a picture of a good marriage in general, where it is about service and selflessness, that you don't belong to yourself, but you belong to another. And in fact, in the last four or five verses, if you read it from six to seven, Paul has twice said that your body is not your own. He says, if you are a Christian, in chapter six, your body is a temple and it belongs to God. So glorify God with your body. Now in just a verse or two later in chapter seven, it says your body is not your own. It belongs to your spouse if you are married. And so that whole teaching, that, that, that selflessness, that I am not here for me, uh, both for God and if I'm married, for my spouse, um, that reality needs to be a way that we think. Um, and the point is here not to, to beat someone up, to, again, to get what we want. Uh, because Paul's approach here is that sex is not about getting, but it is about giving. But I love this passage, and there are several things that are under the surface of this. Um, I don't love this passage, I should say that. It's, it's an awkward passage, but I, I, I like some of the things it draws out because it implies communication. It implies communication going on in a marriage. And um, one of the hardest things for marriages to do is communicate about anything, right? Let alone sex, right? That brings up all kinds of, of, of intimacy issues or insecurities or fears or things from the past. And it can be a very awkward thing. And yet Paul is acknowledging that this needs to be a topic of conversation in a marriage, But, well, what are your needs, and how do we do that, and how can we fulfill those needs, and how do I serve you, how do we serve each other is the key, right? There is mutual submission, respect is needed, love is needed, and these lead to great things. And he says, don't deprive one another. He says, you should enjoy and engage one another physically. Um, You should not use sex as a form of punishment or negotiation. In a marriage, using sex as a weapon to get what you want or to manipulate or to use your spouse as an object for your pleasure is not God's design. And that's not what these verses are calling to. They are calling us to a mutual service of one another. And he knows that there may be times when we withdraw from one another because of various things. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's a spiritual thing. Maybe it's a monthly thing. Maybe it's a, a, a season of life or a health issue. There could be lots of things. But again, the implication is that we are communicating with those. We are talking with each other about those things. And sex is one of those things that becomes a huge conflict in marriage for lots of couples because of those health issues or because of insecurities. Um, and it's easy to feel alone. And so uh, Paul is giving advice, and the fact that Paul is even talking about this in the Bible, of all places, ought to bring us comfort to say, you know what, it's okay to have these conversations with a counselor or with a trusted and wise friend, maybe someone who's been down the, the path farther that can help you and encourage you, and a safe person to talk to. But he also recognized the devil knows how to work against us, and he will use our passions, he will use our, our, our lusts. If, if we're not serving each other and working together in that and communicating through that. And so in verse 6 then, um, 
He kind of finishes the blessing on the whole marriage thing, and he highlights another gift. Not just marriage is a gift, but he highlights that singleness is also a gift. Look what he says in verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one from one kind and one of another. And so what's Paul? What is Paul referring to? He's talking about his singleness, his ability to live his life unmarried. And Paul loves that. He finds great fulfillment in that. His ministry is flourishing because of that in a lot of ways. And now he turns that not only God blesses marriage, but God blesses singleness. Paul is not writing this to force anyone to be married, to say that there's some super level of spirituality or maturity or blessing from God that comes to the married that isn't given to the unmarried. Paul very much says marriage is a gift, but singleness also is a gift from God if we see it that way. People have different gifts, and he had the gift of singleness. And the word that he uses for gift is the same word later that when we talk about spiritual gifts of of leadership, of, of love, of mercy, of all the things that we can do to serve each other, that marriage and singleness is a gift that God gives to us. Now, we live in a time which is kind of unique in history. That really in the United States, there are more single people than there are married people, probably for the first time in history. And that's for lots of reasons. Some of it's the comfortableness or the normalness of cohabitation before marriage or the normalization of premarital sex or longer lifespans has things to do with that, that we outlive one another. And so most of us, even if you're married, you're going to be single um, at some point in your life. Um, The belief in marriage is declining. Uh, All kinds of issues that go into that. And so... Lots of people are going to be in both of these camps throughout their life. Maybe it's marriage, maybe it's singleness, and and Paul is trying to say, you know what, you're not blessed by God in one camp and not blessed by God in the other. God recognizes the value and the beauty and the gift of both of them because they both have places. When we go back to the end of chapter 6, how do I glorify God in my body? Well, if I'm married, these are some of the ways I do that. But if I'm single, I also have the opportunity to glorify God in my body in unique ways that come to the single person's life. And Paul is clear that no one has to get married in Paul's mind to be blessed by God or be in God's favor or to be, have some level of certain holiness that comes to you that, that other people do not. Paul is very comfortable saying people like Paul, like himself, or like Jesus, or others we'll see in a moment, that, that, that there is a level of faithfulness and goodness and giftedness that comes with that that is quite pleasing and honoring to God. Marriage does not indicate a level of favor and honor from God. Again, it's a gift. It's a good thing. It ought to be treasured and nurtured and invested in. But it is not something that makes you different or above. Paul saw himself as favored and blessed and honored by God in his life as a single man. He was loved fully by God. He wasn't loved more if he was married or loved less if he was single. Marriage does not make you happy. And I love this quote, that marriage does not make you happy, it just makes you married, right? Because there are lots of people, and someone, as you read a commentary, that Paul writes his whole chapter talking to married people who want to be single and single people who want to be married to say, you know what, you need to just be, learn to be happy in the state that he called you in. He'll use that phrase in the next few weeks, that there is a, a specialness of where you're at and that God is at work right where you are, not down the road when, I, when my status changes, It's right where you are that God calls you and God uses you. Your status may change. That's fine. But that's right where you are is where God is wanting to work in your life right now. Paul was single, and he wished others would experience and be content in that too. 
It's interesting. Some people think maybe Paul was married earlier in his life. Um, They based that on the idea that Paul was part of the Sanhedrin, um, or at least an apprentice to the Sanhedrin, and that would have brought with it the implication that marriage and family and all those kind of things. And so maybe Paul's wife has died. Maybe she left him, as he's going to write in the next few verses, that if your unbelieving spouse leaves because you become a Christian, let them go. You're free. You're released. And maybe that was Paul's experience in his own life. We don't know for sure, but in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is going to say, you know what, as an apostle, I had every right in the world to take a wife, to be married, but I chose not to because the work that I'm doing in my single life is far greater than I could ever do married. And so um, just as in marriage, the view was not necessarily about self, the same thing Paul says here about singleness, that that there are things that I can do. It is a gift from God to be used for God, right? He goes on in verses 8 and 9, the end of our text, to say this. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Apparently, Paul was able to conquer that lust and that desire in his life, and so others could not. He says, and that's fine. He says, we have to kind of listen to our, our hearts and where that's at, right? Where, what are we struggling, and, and where is God calling us? Now, both of these themes, I'm sure you're excited to hear, will be unpacked more in the next two sermons. And so come back next week for more of this fun talk on marriage and singleness and sexuality. And so um, <laughs> I'm excited. I don't know if you are, but... Um, but yeah, somebody came in and said, chapter seven is an interesting chapter with lots of opinions. We're going to do it in three different weeks. It'll be fun. So, all right. So, but I just want to think about some implications. What does this mean? We look at this passage of scripture and what does it do for us? I, there may, you may read this passage and draw some things in your own conclusion. That's great. I drew out five things that I just want to put up here just to let you think this is what I think we can learn from this and be helped by this passage of scripture. Uh, the first one is this. Um, I think as you read a passage like this, you see that an unselfish and Christ-like attitude affects everything, even our approach to sex and marriage and singleness. I just think there's underlying theme of, as, whether it's marriage or singleness, I'm here as a servant. Right? I'm here to serve if I'm married. I'm here to serve if I'm single because we don't own our bodies. God owns them. And if I'm married, there's another contingent to that. But if I'm single, all of this, this is all about God, right? This is all about how do I glorify God in my body? And so there's this unselfishness, this Christ-like attitude that Paul could say in his own life and his singleness as he talked to the married folks. Hey, there's this unselfishness as you work together to serve each other and to meet one another's needs. Um, And the temptation of our culture, the trend and the... um, mantra of our culture is very selfish. That's why pornography is so destructive because it makes it all about me and what I want and my needs. It rewires our brains towards a selfish attitude and we no longer connect in a mutually serving relational context and it becomes all about me. And so this approach from Paul stands in contrast to so many things in our culture that make sex and singleness and marriage a very self-centered thing. And so when we follow Jesus, it ought to be growing this unselfish and Christ-like attitude that asks a different question. The question is no longer, well, how can I use people to please me? But the question is, well, Jesus has met me and saved me and served me and filled me, and he's going and dealing with the deepest parts of my heart. And so then how do I meet the needs of others? 
How do I serve God? How do I serve another? How do I do that? That's a different question than what a self-centered heart does. And so there's an unselfish Christ-like attitude that they're bringing into this discussion about marriage and singleness. And I think there's a healthy example there for us. Because if you want your life, your marriage, or your singleness to be better, to be seen as a blessing, to be experienced as a blessing, certainly an unselfish Christ-like attitude is going to do that. Okay? Uh, so I think that attitude is important. Number two, uh, learning to communicate in marriage is such a key thing. Again, we already kind of unpacked that a little bit, but that whole discussion about his needs and her needs physically, there's a communication going on in that. And if you're married, uh, communication is always hard, right? We're busy, um, seasons of life come and go, and it's, we, just, it's, we just get caught in the routine, and, and we re- don't really talk about those hard issues, about this is where I'm at, these are the needs of my life, this is the season of life. So just learning and being in the habit of communicating about things in general and even about our physical needs and issues that may cause us um, struggles. But just learning to communicate together is, a past, is something I draw out of this that, that is an application. Number three, um, you can be happy and fulfilled in life apart from sex. Um, you can be happy and fulfilled in life apart from sex. You live in a culture that tells you the happy people and the fulfilled people are the active people, right? Um, but Paul has given us this teaching, and he'll build on it, that you can be happy and fulfilled in your life apart from sex. And I would point you in the direction of lots of people, but I would just say, was Jesus happy? Was Jesus fulfilled? Yes, and he was single, and Paul, and, and Titus, and Timothy, and and. Phoebe and Philip's four daughters who were prophetesses and all of these people that go through their life quite happy and fulfilled and serving God and making a huge difference in the world, um, they did it apart from sex. The beauty and the gift of singleness is highlighted in this passage. And again, I don't know, we all come here in different states of, of life. Um, and I just think that leading to this last thing, we're going to, last two things we're going to get to, I think just seeing the importance and the, and the beauty of both if you're married, invest in it, enjoy it, make the most of it. If you're single, enjoy it, make the most of it, give, just give it to God. And, and, and both of those things, the attitude that we bring to them. But most of our culture, from our movies to our songs to the stories we love so much, all talk about how happiness and fulfillment are out there somewhere. They're not found with Jesus in here. They're found by a person out there. I'll illustrate it with a picture of Tom Cruise from the movie from the 1990s, I think, of Jerry Maguire, right? Remember this? Let's see if you know this phrase. I'm going to say, you, oh, you complete me. You know it. All right, I watched the clip and I cried again. Uh, you complete me, which followed just on the next few heels. You had me at hello, right? There's that, okay, that's beautiful, right? And there's nothing wrong with romance and all that stuff, right? That's all great. The Hallmark Channel exists for a reason. All all those things are good. They're fine. There's a place for all of that. But the philosophy that says only happiness, only fulfillment is found in the right person coming into my life, and then I can be fulfilled. Then I can be happy, and that person will complete me. Um, There's a dangerous line that we cross. I got to be happy and fulfilled with me and with Jesus in me. And, and as I learn to do that, I'm going to be a better single person. I'm going to be a better marriage partner if I am finding that happiness and fulfillment in my life with Jesus. Number four, both marriage and singleness are gifts from God. Um, both marriage and singleness are gifts from God. Um, 
And, and Paul is just quite clear on that. He's not down on either one of them, not pushing that one's better necessarily than the other. Both are normal things that God's people are going to find themselves in. And they're both gifts. And so we treasure them that way. David Platt, and a thing he did earlier this spring, it's a long teaching. We won't go there because I know you have cookies you want to eat. Or some of you have cookies. Some of you don't. And so, um, but, uh, uh, but he just went through this whole thing, showing the difference in approach from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That the Old Testament was very much based in Genesis one with creation, God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, be fruitful, multiply, fill this beautiful planet I have made. Genesis 15, he calls Abraham, establishes the covenant, says, I'm going to bless the world through you. He takes Abraham out in the starry night and says, look at all the stars of the sky. That's how many um, descendants you're going to have. And the rest of the Old Testament story is very much about family, marriage, um, having kids, that's how you grow Israel, is you have kids, right? There's multiple families and all of these things. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a God thing. But when you get to Isaiah, and, and in that culture, being single was a curse, right? If you were single or a, unable to have kids, that was seen as God's curse on your life. But then Isaiah comes along, and he starts to talk about, in Isaiah 53, these prophecies of this Messiah who's going to be crucified, and, and he's going to be completely wiped off the earth but then there's these conversations about how his offspring will be so numerous, but the single man is going to have all these offspring. It's like, how does that happen, right? Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, but this one who's crucified, who's done away with, he has all these offspring. And the emphasis from Jesus forward shifts from large families of Israel, and then all of a sudden it's not physical descendants, it's spiritual regeneration, whereas people put their trust in Christ that may have no physical bonds to each other, but they are bound in, in Christ and in the Spirit. And there's this new family of God that is, again, may or may not be physically related, but there's this new family of faith that he develops. And so in that context, singleness, which was uh, seen as, as so many, such a struggle in the Old Testament, now is exalted. Jesus is single. Paul is single. All some of the most important people in your Bible will single, and 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 Jesus shows that. Jesus shows that both are a gift. Again, you can find scriptures all over the place that highlight the beauty and the significance of marriage, and the beauty also and the significance of singleness. And that leads to the last thing we'll finish with is this: just embrace the gift of singleness or marriage, whichever you find yourself in now knowing that both honor God and witness to the gospel. We are all broken people who have come to Christ in faith in him. Whether we are single, married, whether that changes throughout the course of our life, wherever you find yourself, embrace the gift of singleness or marriage, knowing that both of them are a place where you can honor God and you can witness to the gospel. We've already pointed at Ephesians chapter 5. We said that, again, it's a beautiful picture in marriage. Christ is the, is the husband, the church is the bride. There's this deep sacrificial love that Christ shows for his church. Again, that's the picture of this love and respect in marriage that, that we portray, we try to live out. But then you come here to First uh, Corinthians chapter 7 and other places, and you find that Paul talks about the beauty and the, the significance. And his identity isn't found in being married or not married. His identity is found in Christ, and Christ is enough. Christ is enough, and that's the witness that the single person can portray to the world, that Christ is enough, and he is worthy of full devotion. 
And so both, quit looking across the fence at them, thinking, well, this is where I'm at in my life. If I'm married, I want to honor God with my body by investing myself the best I can in this marriage. If I'm single, I want to glorify God in my body through my singleness. You see, Jesus and my identity in Jesus completes us and fulfills us in a way that no human being ever will be able to. And so Paul is encouraging us to come to Jesus, to trust in him, to allow him to be the center and the focus of our life. And if I'm married and Jesus is the center and the focus of my life, I'm going to be full of Jesus in order to give that to my my partner, my, my husband or my wife. If I'm single, I'm full of Jesus and I can give that to the world. And I'm, I've got enough because Jesus is enough. And so you may have other fun applications from that passage of scripture. Um, but I just appreciate how he tackles a subject that oftentimes is confusing and hard for us, but he does so in a way that lifts us all up. What other status you may be, married or single, um, or in the course of any of those things, um, God values those, and God uses those. And we can honor God with our body as a married person or as a single person, and may we commit to doing so. Would you pray with me, please? Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this teaching. It may feel a bit awkward. It may put us in a place of uh, maybe wrestling or having questions or needing to think and pray more. But God, I just pray that as we look at this passage and maybe the things that we can draw out of it, that all of us who come broken in relating to one another, that we would learn to come with the heart of Christ and and with the wisdom and the example of Christ and be able to love one another better, to be loved and love you in a better way. And so, Father, what, whatever state we find ourselves in today, married or single, I pray that we would be committed to uh, honoring you with our body. It's not easy. We wrestle every day with all of these things. But, Lord, would you help us to, uh, to live out this call of Jesus, the example of Jesus, the um, the principles of Jesus in a way that, that you are just glorified because we have lived in these temples in honoring ways. And so help us, Father, um, give us the strength and the wisdom and the help each moment to do these things. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.